last night was a was a referendum. Uh, I don't think there's any way that you can look at it in a different way, to be honest with you, and be intellectually consistent. Oh, you'll figure something out. Republican Congressman Scott Taylor of Virginia. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I was wondering. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck From in the middle. Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Up in Oregon on 91.7 KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 KSO in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 WLRI. In Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1. In Palinville, New York on 102.9 WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR. In New Orleans on 102.3 WHIV. In Washington, D.C., which is shaken up today on 105.5 FM. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul, also shaken up in a good way on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Detour Talk, and Radio Sputnik, amongst other many fine affiliates, both streaming and terrestrial, Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today. Well, it has been one year to the day since Donald Trump was supposedly elected as president of the United States by some three million votes less than his opponent, Hillary Clinton, so... How's that going? <laughs> I think you might be referring to, what? say, like there was an election or something. There was an election on Tuesday, as you uh, may know by now. And hello, Desi Doyen. Hi. Good to talk to you there. Uh, there was an election. Uh, it was Election Day in about one third of the U.S. states. And, well, the numbers are still coming in today. Votes are still being canvassed, tabulated almost entirely by computers, I should add. So either tabulated correctly or incorrectly, who knows? And in some cases, those uh, results will be challenged and uh, in some soon recounted, hopefully by hand. Well, nonetheless, we've got, at least according to those computer tabulated results, a pretty good picture of where the electorate stands for the moment, one year after having elected Donald Trump to the White House. And none of it, none of the news coming in is proving to be good news for the president or his Republican Party on the day after. We will discuss the remarkable election results in a moment from Tuesday's blue tidal wave election uh, that washed across the country. I I tried to look up some of those results, by the way, on foxnews.com today, but 
finding those results from their front page, as one wag said on Twitter today, is like playing Where's Waldo. Oh, my. It, it, good luck. Good luck finding those uh, election results over at foxnews.com. So we will try to make it all a little bit easier for you in a moment. For you fact-deprived Fox News fans out there, because I know you are listening to the broadcast. Uh, also coming up, since the NRA has effectively blocked any and all attempts at the federal level to impose any type of new gun safety legislation... Despite the obscene and embarrassing gun epidemic that uh, apparently everyone can see, even Fox News fans in this country can see, uh, they're blocking all legislation. So is there any way to take action on guns that neither runs afoul of the GOP NRA's grotesque and ridiculously bastardized interpretation of the Second Amendment? And that cannot be blocked by Republicans who are more indebted to the millions of dollars in funding from the terrorist enabling NRA from their benefactors there than they are to their own voters. My guest coming up momentarily says, yes, yes, there is a way he has what I think is a great idea of how to do exactly that. We will discuss but, of course, the big news today is that blue tidal wave that rolled across much of the country on Tuesday, which is uh, being seen by Democrats and honest Republicans today as a rebuke of President Trump and GOP policies from big states to smaller states, from high office down to city councils and boards of election. Uh, I'm sorry, boards of education, even from big cities to to the suburbs and beyond. So there's a lot of news to cover here. I've been struggling to keep up since the polls closed on Tuesday night uh, throughout the day today. So the best we can do right now is sort of offer an overview, hope to get into more details about what it all means in future broadcasts, particularly as we head into a big mid-year election in 2018. But let's start in Virginia. Most of the national attention uh, in the run-up to Tuesday had been focused on Virginia. It, it also offers one of the most startling outcomes, I think, in a number of ways. It's also... Uh, an interesting issue in that the state has finally moved to from their 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen systems to this year hand marked paper ballots due to concerns about hacking. That happened in Virginia. That alone is good news, um, albeit their move to hand-marked paper ballots is, uh, is still, the, those ballots are still counted by optical scan computers. But hey, you got to start somewhere. That's a good place to start, so we will take it. At least there is something to recount, as there will be a number of recounts, it looks like, now in Virginia. And as you know, also on days like this, my usual caveat that uh, problems and specific concerns about various uh, electronic voting and tabulation systems, those often take some time to come to light. You can look at our coverage over the past two weeks about Georgia's special election in June, back in June, and the presidential race last November to, to get an idea, as we've been uh, reporting over the past couple of weeks, concerns about those elections 
Uh, so for now, uh, we're working from results as reported by these electronic systems. Take them for what they're worth at the moment. But let's start in Virginia. This was perhaps the biggest race of the day. Democrat Ralph Northam defeated Republican uh, former RNC chair Ed Gillespie to become governor of Virginia by a much larger than expected nine point margin, 54 to 45 Northam will replace Virginia's Democratic governor, their outgoing Democratic governor and former DNC chair Terry McAuliffe in what had been seen as a very much a bellwether race with Gillespie running an exceedingly divisive race based campaign using Trump like tactics and ads to call for keeping Confederate monuments in place, scaring people about immigrants uh, to call for sanctuary cities in Virginia and, uh, frankly, just sliming Northam for all manner of things, claiming he supported MS-13 criminal gangs, all the stuff that, uh, you know, just feeds on this uh, Fox News uh, nonsense. That's the campaign he ran and it didn't work. Democrats are very happy about this race in particular because Gillespie had been supported by Trump and by Breitbart's Steve Bannon. And had Gillespie won, of course, it would have justified that very type of Trump campaign for Republicans in virtually every race in next year's midterm elections. But with this loss, it's expected that a lot of Republicans in Congress may just be calling it quits in the days ahead. We'll see. Uh, it also means that a Democratic governor will be in place in the governor's mansion in Virginia after the 2020 census that is upcoming and the redistricting that will follow thereafter that I hope Democrats pay attention to in 2020 in a way that they did not in 2010 so that they understand how important control of these state houses and governor's mansions actually are. And not just not just Democrats, but but the voters as well. A lot of people don't pay attention to their state level legislative legislative elections because they don't realize the impact that it has on their national representation. Well, that's exactly right. Uh, their national uh, representation in Congress, their representation at their own uh, state house. Uh, in any event, having a Democratic governor in Virginia will make it much harder for Republicans to further gerrymander that state again if they control the legislature at all by that time. Uh, Josh Crusher at um, uh, the politics editor at National Journal says that these Virginia results <clears throat> more than the Jeff Flake speech a week or so ago, more than Bob Corker, more than Russia News will do more to put a break on GOP embrace of Trump than anything else. He notes elections matter. They do. Tuesday, and <laughs> I mean, if you don't know it now, I don't know when you'll ever know it, but Tuesday did not bode well for those GOP chances in 2018, and it was not just in that one governor's race. Um, Democrat Justin Fairfax became the second African-American to ever win a statewide seat in Virginia since the Civil War. He became the uh, next lieutenant governor in Virginia. Democratic Attorney General Mark Herring was uh, reelected statewide after he had barely won back in 2013 by the slimmest of margins. But the biggest news, perhaps, in Virginia could be the stunning turn in the Virginia House of Delegates, which had been... Prior to Tuesday, 
Uh, just a huge Republican majority, uh, 66 to 34 Republican majority in the Virginia House of Delegates. That was before Tuesday. However, on Tuesday, Democrats flipped what appears to be at least 15 of those Republican seats from Republican to Democratic, 15 seats. And that means while there are still uh, at least, well, about five races uh, that are still too close to call at this hour, literally less than 100 votes separating uh, the winner from loser in those uh, in those races. Again, a reminder that every vote matters. One race uh, last I saw was 12 votes uh, between them. So that will uh, likely result in recounts there. Happily, they now have paper ballots to hand count if that happens. But Dems could actually end up taking control of the Virginia House 51-49 or at least end up in a 50-50 split. Either way, this is a remarkable development. It had not even been considered prior to Tuesday. And it does not bode well for Republicans in 2018 at the congressional level. Flipping even 14 seats from red to blue in Virginia would be the biggest Democratic pickup in that state since 1899. And it looks like they will do better than that. Among the uh, seats in the Virginia House that flipped Republican to Democrat on Tuesday... Uh, one of the worst anti-LGBT lawmakers in America, a guy who had held a seat for some 26 years. He just got beaten by a trans woman. <laughs> uh, transgender Sorry. Danica Rome will become the first transgender lawmaker in Virginia. And while I don't personally know the political intricacies of Virginia, uh, one emailer wrote to me to say that uh, she won in a very conservative Prince William County. Yeah. So uh, yeah, that's one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just say that that the uh, that, that the guy that was uh, displaced. Well, his sister on uh -huh. Twitter came yeah. out and said, "Hey, he's my brother. I love him, but he was the most anti-trans and anti-LGBT lawmaker in Virginia. And sorry, brother, karma is a b." <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Uh, it was so it was uh, a bitch there is what you were trying to avoid yeah, saying. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, also here, uh, remember that local TV correspondent who was fatally shot uh, on air a couple of years ago? Oh, yeah. Well, her boyfriend had decided to run for office in honor of her memory uh, on a platform to reduce gun violence. He won in an upset. That was Chris Hertz, Democrat, uh, unseated the Republican uh, delegate there, Joseph Yost. Um, one year after Trump's victory, uh, Virginia elected overall uh, if the first transgender delegate in the country, the first out in the in the uh, in the state, the first out. Well, actually, in the in the country. Yeah. Also, the first out lesbian delegate in the state, the first Asian-American woman delegate in the state, the first two Latina delegates in the state and the first Democratic Socialist. Oh, hello, Bernie Sanders, first Democratic Socialist candidate in the state. A lot of folks were stepping up to run and um, and they're winning and they're winning. Yep. As our friend Ian Milheiser at Think Progress details, however, today, the Virginia wave would have been much worse for Republicans if it weren't for gerrymandering. Democratic candidates for the Virginia House of Delegates won more than 220,000 more votes than their Republican counterparts. They won the two-party contest with Republicans by more than nine percentage points. Nonetheless, 
Republicans may still maintain control of the lower house or at least share it with Republican with the Democrats due to gerrymandering. In other words, uh, the results will either be a very narrow GOP majority, a very narrow Democratic majority or a tied legislature, despite the fact that Democratic candidates outperformed Republicans by some nine and a half percentage points. That is what gerrymandering looks like. That's why it matters that there will be a, uh, a Democrat, at least in the uh, governor's mansion after 2020, um, to at least veto anything that uh, the Republican legislature, if they still control it, might try to do in that regard after the 2020 census. Uh, that remains an outrage. I'm hoping the Supreme Court does something about it. They are currently considering a case on partisan gerrymandering. Gil v. Whitford that we uh, uh, discussed a week or two on this show with David Daly. So we'll see how that works out. But in any event, uh, that's Virginia. But the good news did not end for Democrats there in New Jersey. The era of Chris Christie is will soon be over. Just a bad <laughs> nightmare to look back on. The wildly unpopular Republican New Jersey governor who has an approval rating around 15 percent in the state. I believe he's the most unpopular governor in the country. He will be replaced by Democrat Phil Murphy, who easily defeated Christie's lieutenant governor, Republican Quim, uh, Kim Guadano, by some 14 points. It was just a wipeout in New Jersey for governor, uh, but that wasn't the only uh, 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 place in Hoboken. Hoboken, New Jersey, Ravi Bala, a lifelong New Jerseyan and attorney. He will become the first Sikh mayor in the city's history. He had declared during the campaign, quote, I'm everything that Trump hates, a brown man wearing a turban and a proud American with know-how to stop his assault on our country's values said that during the campaign, and he handily won in Hoboken to become the city's first Sikh mayor. Uh, meanwhile, next door in New York, Bill de Blasio, uh, the mayor of New York City, he easily won a second term. Uh, it's the first time in almost 30 years since 1989 that a Democrat has won uh, the governorships in Virginia and New Jersey and the mayoral race in New York City all at the same time. A big day for Democrats. Did I mention that? In Pennsylvania, civil rights lawyer Larry Krasner, the lawyer for Black Lives Matter, uh, he won. Uh, he, he ran to combat the uh, justice system uh, inequalities. He had previously sued the Philadelphia police force. He was elected as Philadelphia's top prosecutor. That's right. Black Lives Matter's lawyer will now be the district attorney in Philadelphia. Staying up east for the moment in Maine. Uh, Maine became the first state to expand Medicaid by referendum. Uh, however, the uh, nation's dumbest governor, Paul LePage, refuses uh, to he says today that he will refuse this Medicaid expansion despite the approval by Maine voters. He's also vetoed that expansion uh, approved by the legislature five times. He says he won't allow this voter initiative to go through. 
We'll see if he's able to get away with it. He similarly has been blocking the voter-approved medical marijuana initiative passed by Maine's uh, voters last year. So expect legal fights ahead with the nation's dumbest governor, Paul LePage. But the success of that measure on the ballot underscores the national uh, support for the Affordable Care Act, uh, or Obamacare. States where voters might want to do the same thing in 2018, get Medicaid expansion from the Affordable Care Act onto the ballot uh, in places like Florida and Idaho and Missouri and Mississippi, Nebraska, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Utah, Wyoming, all states that are withholding health care that would be paid for almost entirely by the federal government, which means those voters are already paying for this health care. They're just not getting it. 80,000 would uh, get health care tomorrow if Paul LePage stopped fighting this thing in Maine. So that's uh, something to look forward to in 2018. I bet a lot of these states are going to do exactly that, get that measure on their ballot. It helps uh, people turn out for it. They are in favor of it. In Georgia, where, yes, they still use 100% unverifiable voting systems, nonetheless, Democrats also picked up two seats from uh, Republicans in Georgia's House of Representatives, seats that were previously so Republican they were uncontested back in 2016, as Ezra Klein observes from Vox. Uh, In North Carolina, Democrat Vi Lyles won the race for Charlotte, North Carolina mayor. She will become the first African-American woman to lead the city in Charlotte, North Carolina. In Minneapolis, uh, Andrea Jenkins is now the first openly trans woman of color. So a trans person also of color elected to the city council of a major U.S. city in neighboring St. Paul. 38-year-old Melvin Carter just became the city's first black mayor. So, hey, congratulations to all of our uh, listeners up there on... uh, KTNF, uh, a big day for Minneapolis-St. Paul. African-Americans were elected mayor for the first time in a bunch of cities. In Statesboro, Georgia, in Georgetown, South Carolina, in Milledgeville, Georgia, in Helena, Montana, in Cairo, Georgia, in uh, and of course in St. Paul, Minnesota, and Charlotte, North Carolina, as I said. So we saw a, a good African-American turnout. We saw a good turnout from young voters. All encouraging signs, at least if you're a Democrat. The wave continued even into the heart of the Midwest on Tuesday. In Topeka, Kansas, where, as Mother Jones' Ari Berman points out, the anti-immigrant, anti-voting rights crusader, Secretary of State and gubernatorial wannabe Chris Kobach goes to work each day, they, Topeka, Kansas, just elected their first Hispanic mayor. As the Topeka Capital Journal reports today, Topeka Councilwoman... Michelle de la Isla, not sure if I'm saying that correctly, uh, edged out her opponent on Tuesday evening to win the election as mayor of Topeka uh, by uh, 51 to 48 percent. It sounds like 51 48 is a somewhat comfortable uh, victory, but in fact, that amounted to just over 400 votes, a 400 vote margin. Wow. So, yes, every vote still matters. Uh, Finally, uh, for now, moving way out west, uh, a special election for the Washington State Senate. 
means there will now be a blue wall on the West Coast from Canada all the way down to Mexico, most likely. As reported by the Seattle Times, holding a double-digit lead as of Tuesday night over her 45th District Senate opponent, Democrat Manka Dingra appeared set to hand her party control of the Washington State Senate. This would be the last GOP-held legislative chamber on the West Coast. So this was a very high-profile race. Right now, uh, Washington uses mostly vote-by-mail, so it'll be a few days before we know precisely, but um, she has, uh, last I checked, about 55% of the vote over Republican Jin Young Lee England. Um, So we'll see as the vote counts continue there, but it looks like she will win. She will win this, and she's a first-time candidate. She's a senior deputy prosecutor in King County. Democrats uh, currently control the House and the governor's office. They would now take control also of the state Senate. State Democratic Party chair told supporters at the uh, election night party for Dingra that, quote, we become the last brick in the big blue wall up and down the West Coast. Democrats also hold the governor's office in Washington, Oregon and California, where Republicans are becoming an endangered species, to put it nicely. Washington's Democratic Governor Jay Inslee says a Democratic victory in that 45th district race would open the door to legislation about voting rights, women's contraceptives, gun safety, and yes, climate change. You got it right. (laughs) Uh, All of which had been previously blocked by this one vote GOP majority in the state Senate. So uh, maybe some very good news out there in Washington state and up and down the West Coast, noting that the president has been traveling in Asia. Democratic uh, National Committee Chair Tom Perez declared triumphantly after last night's results revealed this huge tidal wave for Democrats, quote, the America that Donald Trump comes back to in a few days is a far different America than the one that he left. It's an America where we are regaining our values. That's the optimistic note from the DNC chair, capping a wildly encouraging day for Democrats. But whether it means that we are regaining our values or not remains still an open question. That point is particularly true just days after another mass gun slaughter in Texas with Republicans controlling both houses of Congress still and the White House and unwilling to do a damn thing about any of it. But my guest coming up has an idea about how Democrats, at least, like those in that blue wall on the West Coast and elsewhere, can take at least some action right now. Mark Joseph Stern joins me next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com slash donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. 
We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. As reported today by uh, Jordan Kearney at The Hill, Senate Democrats are moving to ban assault weapons and so-called bump stock devices that allow semi-automatic weapons to simulate automatic fire in the wake of mass shootings in Las Vegas and in Texas. Yes, the world goes on even after those big elections on Tuesday. Roughly two dozen Democrats, led by Dianne Feinstein of California, introduced legislation today that would ban assault weapons, high-capacity ammunition magazines, and bump stocks. Feinstein, Feinstein said in a statement that we're introducing an updated assault weapons ban for one reason, so that after every mass shooting with a military-style assault weapon, the American people will know that a tool to reduce these massacres is sitting in the Senate, ready for debate and a vote. Congress previously enacted an assault weapons ban way back in 1994, but that legislation expired in 2004, and then Republican President George W. Bush and Republicans in Congress declined to reauthorize it. They have blocked all such legislation ever since then. The new Democratic bill would ban the sale, production, and transfer of military-style assault weapons, with some exceptions. The owners would be able to keep existing weapons. It would also ban magazines that hold more than 10 rounds of ammunition and would uh, require a background check on any future trade or sale of an assault weapons uh, that was covered by the legislation. But of course, as the Senate Democrats know very well by now, Republicans, despite the wishes of their own constituents, are beholden to the terrorist-enabling gun lobbyists known as the NRA, not to those constituents. So until something changes, it's unlikely that any legislation to improve gun safety laws in any way will make it through this Congress. Nonetheless, the case is not hopeless. There is something that Democrats can do even now to try to at least try and improve the fallout of, uh, of, from our horrific gun epidemic in the U.S. that takes the lives of more than 30,000 Americans and injures far more of them each year. There is legislative action that can be taken to help victims of gun violence and force the powerful gun lobby to at least pay a price, albeit a small price, for the huge blood profits that they reap in the bargain. Writing at Slate this week on the heels of the Texas Church massacre in Sutherland Springs on Sunday and all of the other mass shootings that took place in the days prior, legal reporter Mark Joseph Stern writes, imagine this. You're in a church or a school or a concert or a movie theater and you hear gunshots. The next thing you know, you wake up 
in a hospital bed. You learn that you're a survivor of a mass shooting and that doctors spent hours removing bullets from your body. Soon, you'll discover that the health care that you've received so far will cost you thousands of dollars out of pocket and that you've incurred injuries that will require pricey lifetime treatments. You then hear the details of the shooting. The gun that nearly killed you was an assault weapon marketed to civilians for its military-grade performance. It was designed to shoot many people in a brief amount of time, and its manufacturer supplied the weapon to a dealer notorious for selling firearms illegally. Under centuries-old theories of liability, Mark writes, you should be allowed to sue both the manufacturer and the dealer for torts like negligence and public nuisance. You could you could then use that money to pay your medical bills. If you are hurt by a car or a prescription drug, after all, you're typically allowed to sue for damages. But thanks to a federal law called the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act, you have no legal remedy if you are hurt by a gun. No, really, that's the case. In the United States, about 315 people are shot every single day, and 222 of them thankfully survive. But mass shootings are becoming more common and and taking more victims. 58 people were killed in that recent Las Vegas shooting. More than 500 people were injured in that shooting. And those survivors are often saddled with enormous medical debts. The health care costs of gun violence totals about $2.8 billion a year. Thanks, however, to the PLCAA, as the act is known, injured survivors of gun violence are frequently driven into bankruptcy. And given today's political landscape, there is little hope of repealing that law and individual states have no power to abridge a federal law with their own. There is, however, some hope something states can do that would both help those victims and perhaps decrease sales of deadly military style weapons and ammo in the bargain. Mark Joseph Stern is back with us today to explain what this, I think, fantastic idea is. Mark covers the law, the court system, the Supreme Court, LGBTQ issues, and much more at Slate.com. Welcome back to the broadcast, my friend. Thanks so much for having me back on. Always a pleasure. I found your article and your proposal, frankly, absolutely fascinating and well-written and well-argued as usual. And I want to discuss it in detail, but I know first uh, it's, a, it's a big day today. So let me get let's start with something maybe a little happier for you. I don't know your your general thoughts on Tuesday's reported election results, Mark, very quickly. Well, I mean, obviously, it's a, it's a marvelous triumph for uh, Democrats, particularly in Virginia, across the river from where I live, where Democrats will hold uh, the governorship as well as the attorney general position, which is actually very important. Yep. Uh, Mark Herring was reelected for another term as AG, and he's just done a fantastic job suing the Trump administration whenever it breaks the law. So I'm delighted to hear that. Uh, I'm also thrilled uh, that Danica Rome, a transgender woman, has defeated Bob Marshall, uh, perhaps the most anti-LGBT politician in the United States. Now, that is sweet poetic justice. (laughs) However, I must rain on this parade a bit uh, to note that Democrats uh, won the vote statewide by about nine percentage points 
and yet they will not, it seems now, yep. gain a majority in the legislature. Uh, from the results we have today, and there will mm -hmm. be a recount, but the results today indicate that the state uh, House of Delegates will be evenly divided between Democrats and Republicans, 50-50, even though Democrats carried the statewide vote by nine points. That is a direct result of a Republican gerrymander that was done in 2010 and 2011. And so anyone claiming that last night uh, proves that gerrymanders can't hold or proves that uh, gerrymanders aren't that big of a problem is really quite full of it. Um, because if we had fair maps in Virginia, then Democrats would have easily seized the legislature. Well explained. And also thanks for noting uh, uh, Mark Herring there, because he won uh, four years ago uh, by literally a hair. I can't, it was it was just, I think it was about around 100 votes. It was incredibly close uh, four years ago. He has made a big difference ever since, and it reminds us all, as, uh, as you do in your own work, Mark, uh, how important each and every vote is. All right, uh, let's... Uh, Let's talk about this article, um, How to Make the Gun Industry Pay, is the headline. Uh, what is the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act, or the PLCAA? What yes, is so that law? It, PLACA, as it's often referred to, is mm -hmm. an entirely unique law. There is literally nothing else like it in the federal code. Uh, and what PLACA does is essentially erase the laws of all 50 states uh, and every territory in the United States with regard to gun liability. Uh, so if you look at any other consumer product, uh, and we can take pharmaceuticals, uh, or we can look at tobacco, uh, every state is able to develop its own series of liability uh, with regard to purveyors of that product, right? Mm -hmm. So there are federal laws uh, that regulate pharmaceuticals, uh, but states are still able to impose stricter requirements uh, on pharmaceutical companies uh, if they believe them to be negligent. Uh, and juries are empowered to find that a company or a seller or a doctor uh, was negligent in either prescribing a drug or failing to label it with a warning mm -hmm. or flooding the streets with a certain drug. Uh, and so this dual system has allowed states to kind of uh, serve as a backstop uh, where federal regulations will not fully uh, work uh, and, and to ensure that companies uh, are held to account that they pay their fair share for whatever public nuisance they create. Uh, the most famous example here is, of course, tobacco. Uh, in the 1990s, uh, there were dozens of lawsuits against the tobacco industry uh, for negligent marketing, negligent advertising, negligence, uh, and failing to warn consumers. Uh, and the tobacco industry ended up settling for hundreds of billions of dollars. Mm -hmm. uh, now, after that settlement, uh, a number of cities and individuals uh, decided, you know what, this, this same theory could almost certainly be applied to gun manufacturers and gun sellers. You know, these are products like any other product. Uh, and so if there is a bad apple gun seller who is negligently selling guns to people that he obviously shouldn't be selling them to, who is flooding the streets with guns or allowing them to be diverted to an illegal market, we should be able to sue that seller for negligence, for public nuisance, 
Uh, and even more than that, we should be able to sue a manufacturer who makes guns that are designed not at all for civilian use, but clearly for the battlefield, that have no safety features, no safety precautions, that are marketed for their ability to kill a bunch of people in just a little amount of time. Mm -hmm. You know, that, in any other industry with any other product, would be negligent advertising uh, and negligence per se, uh, more broadly. And so a state or a jury would be able to say, you know what, you, the manufacturer, owe a duty of care uh, to make these products safer. There need to be restrictions on how this product is designed and how it's used, and there need to be restrictions on sellers to force them to be more responsible in, in providing these guns to customers. These theories are centuries old. They've been applied to every other product in the books. Uh, and so there was no reason at the time why they couldn't be applied to guns. They were. The gun industry began losing these lawsuits because, of course, the gun industry is negligent at every level. Uh, and so the NRA began lobbying Congress with a new priority, priority number one, it was called at the time, which was to pass a federal shield law that would immunize every level of the gun industry from negligence lawsuits, from liability lawsuits, from civil liability, from torts. Congress responded promptly by passing PLACA, and with a single bill, uh, just one bill, mm -hmm. this law literally erased hundreds of years of law of, of centuries, uh, sorry, hundreds of years of uh, laws and statutes mm -hmm. and jury verdicts, uh, and forced all states to comply with this federal statute um, that basically prevents anybody from successfully suing a gun manufacturer or a gun seller uh, and gives them complete immunity to be as negligent as they want. But only on guns, only on weapons, only the weapons industry. You note in your article that, uh, for example, car manufacturers, when they, when they show a, a, a car speeding through a course, they have to put a disclaimer up there, you know, stunt driver, do not try. And yet the the gun industry, they don't have to include any such disclaimers when they put out their ads, when they promise these have uh, military-like accuracy and everything else, and they market them in this deadly way that are clearly not made for, you know, sport hunting and so forth. But uh, at the time that this was passed, Republicans, I think Jeff Sessions, now our attorney general, was leading the way uh, at the time. And some non-Democrats, I think Bernie Sanders, supported uh, PLACA, as I yes, recall. Unfortunately, a number of Democrats crossed over as well, uh -huh. um, because the NRA was very effective at pulling this, pulling this off sort of under the radar at the time. It was a little too complicated for a lot of people to understand, right, because it involves liability, mm -hmm. which can be a, a, a very nuanced area of the law. Uh, and also, the gun industry really pretended as though there were a crisis that just didn't exist. The gun industry claimed that there were dozens of frivolous lawsuits uh, against manufacturers and sellers that were costing them hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Now, since that time, uh, some researchers have gone back and noted that this is entirely nonsensical. It's not true at all. What? There I'm were shocked. almost no frivolous lawsuits. There were a few very powerful lawsuits, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that, that 
stood a chance of winning, but even then the payout would not have been crippling for these manufacturers. It would have been enough to, say, compensate an individual for the injuries that they suffered Mm -hmm. because of a negligent gun seller. This was not a crisis, but the NRA framed it as one so that they could get this broad bipartisan support. And uh, now in the bargain that this has passed, you've got families uh, of victims who have to go run, you know, GoFundMe pages to try to pay their uh, medical bills, to try to pay their uh, their funeral uh, costs. Uh, you've got uh, a solution of some sort, at least a response to PLACA that you offer. But just to give, before we get to that solution, just to give an idea, you detail several cases, some of them are heartbreaking, frankly, uh, like those of the families of the victims of the Aurora, Colorado movie theater massacre, the Sandy Hook Elementary School massacre, uh, cases uh, that have literally, uh, in, in these cases, allowed the gun industry to literally get away with murder. How did PLACA protect the industry in, in those cases that you uh, pointed to in, uh, in Aurora and in uh, Sandy Hook? Well, the Aurora example is especially egregious um, because what you have here is a single man, uh, as we know, James Holmes, right? Mm-hmm. He decided that he was going to kill a lot of people with a gun, uh, and so he went online and he purchased from a single gun shop, a single gun shop called Lucky Gunner. Uh, this is the Aurora. Months. This is the Aurora case, right? Yes, this is the okay. Yeah, this is the Aurora case. That's right. Yeah, so he purchased. 1,050 rounds of 40 caliber ammunition, uh, 2,250 rounds of uh, 223 caliber ammunition, and 25 rounds of 12-gauge shotgun shells. So this is thousands upon thousands of rounds of notably lethal ammunition from a single dealer. Mm. And the dealer at no point asked what it would be used for, imposed some kind of limitation on the sale, vetted the purchaser, anything like that. He just said, absolutely, here you go. Uh, And so the victims of the Aurora shooting, or the families of the Aurora shooting, um, uh, sued the, the dealer and said, look, this is clearly negligence. This is a textbook example of negligence, of, of a seller violating his duty of care uh, to everybody else, but especially to these people who were killed by your shotguns, by your bullets. Um, if it weren't for PLACA, this suit would have been successful. It's, it's basically not even a question. But because of PLACA, this lawsuit was thrown out in the preliminary stages. It never even stood a chance. And not just that, but PLACA worked with a Colorado law uh, involving attorney's fees that then required the families of these Aurora victims to pay $200,000 in attorney's fees. So these Aurora victim families, they were not only unsuccessful in court, but they were saddled with a $200,000 bill. They were Uh, charged $200,000 after their loved ones were killed in a movie theater just for trying to bring a suit. And it's not a question, Mark, of them not being successful in court. As I understand it, the case was basically just tossed out, was never heard. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, this case could not get to the merits because of PLACA. PLACA kicks in at a very early stage. 
Uh, it's not something that uh, deals with, well, how negligent were you? What are the factors? Something like that. Yeah. It simply says, oh, is this a negligence suit against a gun seller? Then it has to fail. Unbelievable. Uh, it, it, Same it thing. It's astonishing. It is astonishing. Same thing happened in uh, in Sandy Hook uh, with, with those families in Newtown, Connecticut, after the Sandy Hook Elementary School uh, massacre. Uh, all right. So uh, people, the, the gun, the gun industry gets this special dispensation that no other industry does. Uh, so victims can't sue. They can't take action. But you have an idea how at least um, at least uh, they'll pay a price. And at least we will uh, help some of these victims in the bargain. What is the uh, what is the case that you make that you say that Democratic states uh, around the country could uh, could put into practice right now if they wanted to. Yes, uh, really, like this should happen right now. Uh, Virginia yep. should get started on this straight away. Yeah. Uh, to my mind. Uh, so here's here's what they should do, and it's really quite simple. Um, these uh, gun manufacturers and gun sellers only pay the standard tax that all manufacturers and sellers pay. That is really outrageous. Consider the cost to society um, that these uh, gun sellers enable, right? The $2.8 billion in medical expenses alone and beyond that, uh, it's just an astonishing sum that we can't even really begin to calculate. Mm -hmm. And yet they pay the same taxes as somebody who sells groceries, right? right? That can't be right. So here's what I propose, and it's very simple. We need to impose a special tax on the income of gun manufacturers and gun sellers that is high without being exorbitant. You know, states can play with this, but I think somewhere between 10 and 30 percent. Mm -hmm. Tax their profits at every stage. They make a huge amount of money, so this would not burden them. Uh, this would not put many gun stores out of business. This would not shutter manufacturers, but it would force them to pay a lot more, millions more every year in taxes. What the legislature needs to do is take this extra revenue and place it in a fund that is explicitly designated to be paid out to victims of gun violence. When people are shot, and it is not at all their fault, they should be able to draw money from this fund to pay for their medical expenses and other care. There should be no cap, no limit on it, uh, and no one would be able to raise a constitutional objective. This is perfectly compliant with the Second Amendment and with PLACA. This would not uh, violate in any way the Second um, the second Commandment, I think, as a lot of these revisionists see it. Uh, it, would, it would not come anywhere near the Second Amendment if they put this in place. Uh, you, I, I think you also, well, the, we already have things like sin taxes, all the time on cigarettes and alcohol and so forth. Are there no such uh, taxes on uh, on guns and ammo uh, similar to that already? Uh, not nearly at the same level, no. Mm -hmm. We do not impose the taxes on guns and ammo that we should. Um, I believe there are some states that may have slightly heightened taxes um, for the industry, but nothing compared to what we see uh, with tobacco and alcohol. And I should also note that the, the scheme that I just described, mm -hmm. we actually already do it with vaccines. Um, every time you get a vaccine, there was a 75 cent tax placed on that vaccine. The 75 cents is put in a special government fund that is kept by the federal government. Mm -hmm. And whenever anyone is injured by a vaccine, they can complain to a board, and the board will pay them money from that fund. It is 
easy. Mm-hmm. It already happens. Uh, now, of course, the victim of uh, some kind of vaccine malfunction can then sue in court if she wants to as well. There's no version of PLACA for vaccines. But the basic framework already exists. You tax a product, you collect the money, and you make payouts from the funds when someone is injured by that product. Mark, I've really got... Really simple. Yeah, really simple. I've got just a minute here. Uh, are there, to your knowledge, are any states yet working on something like this? This could be passed, you say, yes, in, in Virginia. This could be passed out here in California, it seems to me. Uh, is anybody working on any, anything similar to this, or have you just dreamt this up and we're now getting it fired up? So I, I dreamt this particular scheme up, but it is uh, it borrows from some other theories that have been tossed around to make the industry pay. The most prominent of those is to require all gun owners uh, and gun sellers to carry liability insurance. Um, not a shocking idea, given that in, I believe, 47 states, we already have to have liability insurance if we drive cars, right? Mm-hmm. Cars. Uh, not that different from guns in this regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if we force everyone who purchases a gun to uh, purchase liability insurance as well, mm-hmm. you would create a financial incentive um, for gun makers, gun sellers, to actually begin complying with the law or even going above and beyond what the law requires and ensuring that they are not negligent and that they are you know, taking mm-hmm. everyone's safety into account. So the liability insurance idea is excellent as well, but it's a little too indirect for my tastes. I think that a sort of frontal assault using state sovereign taxing power is probably the cleaner solution. Uh, yeah, and it, it charges directly the uh, the sellers, uh, the dealers in this uh, in this case. Precisely. Uh, I'm going to point people towards your. I think it's a great idea, Mark. I'm going to point people over to Slate.com. Uh, the article is "How to Make the Gun Industry Pay: Federal Law Shields Firearm Purveyors from Liability. Taxing Gun Makers and Dealers is the Only Way to Make Victims Whole." Uh, I hope people will check that out. Share that with their. Uh, with their state and local legislature, le- legislators and, and try to get this moving in the states. Another great idea, uh, more great reporting, uh, Mark Joseph Stern. Thank you so much for, uh, for this article. And as usual, my warning, we will be bothering you again soon. Uh, thanks so much. It really is always a pleasure and uh, happy to spread the word. Your ace is my friend. Check out his piece at Slate.com and follow him on the Twitters at MJS underscore DC. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Okay, running late, but I got an idea how to uh, end this show today that kind of wraps up everything into one nice piece. Stephen Colbert joins us sort of next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. <laughs> Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence, because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com speaking after the uh, Sunday massacre in Sutherland, Texas. Stephen Colbert had a note, uh, a heartfelt note that sort of ties together everything we've talked about today and actually for a long time. Let's give it a listen. I haven't the slightest idea how to adequately address 
the attack in Sutherland Springs, Texas, mm. yesterday. 26 people, 20 others wounded, 26 killed, 20 others wounded in the First Baptist Church of Sutherland Springs, Texas. People on a Sunday going to love and serve the Lord, gunned down by a madman with a semi-automatic weapon and body armor. Now, we are 35 days, something like that, mm. away from the, the, the largest mass killing in American history in Las Vegas. Still don't know why that happened, if we will ever know why that happened, or anyone can ever explain why any of this happens. And everyone is heartbreaking when this happens, and, and, and you want to do something, but nothing gets done. No one does anything. And that seems insane. Mm -hmm. And it can make you feel hopeless. Now, I don't know what to do, but I know that hopelessness is not the answer. You, have, you cannot give up in the face of evil. Nothing gets done about what happened in Las Vegas. They can't even pass a restriction on gun stocks, those bump stocks that turn a semi-automatic weapon into almost a fully automatic weapon. That died. No one's talking about that. Right. Nothing gets done to control the guns that kill 10,000 people a year around America, not just in these mass killings. And doing nothing as I've said before, is unacceptable. But it's, 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 it's unnatural. It's, it's inhuman. Right. It just goes against our nature. We want to fix things. You want to respond to something terrible like this. Not just now, but at any time in human history. 5,000 years ago, if your village had a tiger coming into it every day and was eating people, you wouldn't do nothing. You would move the village, you would build a fence, or you would kill the tiger. You wouldn't say, well, I guess, you know, yep. someone's going to get eaten every day because the price of liberty is tigers. No, no. You take some action. Now, this hopelessness, this powerlessness you feel when nothing gets done is something, as I said, we can't give into. Because I actually think that there are some people out there, some truly evil people out there, who want you to feel powerless just for a buck. Because if you feel powerless enough, you know what might make you feel more powerful? Going to buy a gun. It's a vicious cycle. Violence happens, nothing gets done to get rid of the guns, and people buy more guns to protect themselves, and now there are just more guns out on the street. And yes, this guy wasn't supposed to be able to buy a gun, but he could because they're on the market, these semi-automatic rifles. So what do you do? If you're not going to be hopeless, but you feel powerless, how do you get the power back? Well, I think there is one power you mustn't ever forget, and that is you can vote. You can go vote. In 2018, Vote for someone who will do something. There's an idea, yep. uh, Stephen Colbert, this week. And uh, people did come out, it looks like, to vote this week. You can vote in 2018, but you can also vote, by the way, in December in Alabama. You can vote there. That would be nice to see a surprise in that U.S. Senate special election in uh, December 12, I think it is, just next month. We'll keep our eyes on that. Voting remains the solution. All right. Uh, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Slate, uh, Slate.com's Mark Joseph Stern, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It's greatly appreciated as ever. You can download our programs anytime for free at bradblog.com. I greatly appreciate those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate. 
to help us continue uh, to keep up the fight every day over your public airwaves. You can drop me email as well. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. Find us, follow us, and share us worldwide there. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.